One is a student of the black arts. I was only eight years old when I saw him. The other has tracked his murderous paths. Michael Myers has come back to kill. Look out, there's someone in the room. Together in the final confrontation with Michael Myers, the secret of his evil will be revealed. He's very angry. Halloween, the curse of Michael Myers. This film has not yet been rated. Hello and welcome to Horror Court Trash Over, the show that discusses all the masterpieces and trash to pieces of genre cinema. I'm Gary. And I'm Chris. And welcome to the Fawn Trilogy, Part 2, Mark and Myers Through the Years, Part 3. What? <laughs> yes, we complicated things because we had too much to say about Halloween 4 and 5. We were originally going to discuss all three films in the Fawn Trilogy in one episode, but... We don't want to keep you guys on here for like three hours. Well, the thing is, part five was so shit. We had so much to talk about that it uh, ruined our plan, didn't it? It did. It did. Um, But we are back now on a Friday again uh, with Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers from 1995. The concluding chapter of the Jamie Lloyd timeline and the Fawn Cult trilogy. Directed by Joe Chappelle, who directed Phantoms, Takedown, Dark Prince, The True Story of Dracula, (laughs) The Schools 2, Thieves Quartet, and episodes of The Twilight Zone, 2002-2003, CSI New York and Miami, Wolf Lake, The Wire, etc, etc. Phantoms, is that the random Ben Affleck one? I don't know. I think it was. I think. Well received, better than better received than no, I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think so. I just remember always randomly seeing it on the DVD shops. Uh, budget five million dollars, and it made fifteen point five, uh, fifteen point one million dollars. Excuse me, worldwide. That's not good, is it? It's not. Now straight to video. This is, I think, in some territories, yeah. Ah. Um, this is a weird time for horror, but a, a very weird time for the Halloween franchise as well. Obviously, um, you know, four and five build up to this cult storyline. This takes it head on. Um, at this point, this was before Scream. Um, this, you know, it, it was a weird point in the 90s for horror, wasn't it? Yeah, it was pretty much dire straits at yeah. this point. Um, a few standouts. It wasn't great. Still clinging on to the 80s slasher yes. trend as much yeah. as they could. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, when you look at other horror sequels within this time, we had Hellraiser 3 and 4. Um, we had Jason Goes to Hell, Freddy's Dead, uh, Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Part 3. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's, that's the point we were at. Um, yeah. And this... It's quite possibly the worst out of all of them. Um, although, that although... That's a stiff competition, but d- I think you might be right. It depends which version you watch. So, this is a film of two versions. The theatrical cut and the producer's cut. We'll go into more detail about that later on. Uh, spoiler alert, I prefer the theatrical cut a lot. To the producer's cut. 
Um, yeah, I agree. Well, when we well, go to, we've got a little comparison section coming up and I'll explain why. But first, getting into the trivia. Um, this whole trivia is a bizarre series of events. This production was a disaster. Most of the cast and crew disowned this movie. Uh, on the Halloween 25 Years of Terror documentary, uh, they stated that the studio producers and directors interfered and argued to the point of ridiculousness, which resulted in a very poorly directed and edited film. Yes, it did. That's right. The producers of the movie wanted Brian Andrews to reprise his role as Tommy Doyle from the original Halloween. However, Han- Andrews did not have an agent, uh, so they could not get in contact with him. Had he only been in Halloween? Yeah, pretty much. I see. This is Paul Rudd's film debut. Uh, uh, it was filmed before Clueless, so this, uh, so Clueless is obviously his big. First screen appearance. It's first big screen appearance, should I say? Um, yeah, and then then this. Uh, did Clueless come out before this? It did, but this was filmed before Clueless. This was filmed yeah. before Clueless. I see. Hence, introducing Paul Rudd in the uh, credits. Yes. <laughs> Spoiler alert: He's not good in no. this no. at all. No, he is not, not the Paul Rudd we know today. It, you know, talk about disowning the film. He really needs to fucking disown this film because his acting is terrible. <laughs> really, really bad. It's it's part of a string of big Hollywood actors that started off their careers within horror. Um, I mean, you've got George Clooney, Leonardo DiCaprio, Rene Zellweger, um, Matthew McConaughey, Matthew McConaughey, uh, they can't all you know, be Johnny Depp's, can they? Uh, no, exactly. Johnny Depp's a good example of how it, uh, of it going right. Kevin Bacon is a good example of it going right. Um, and then this. Which is it, it's kind of strange now, because we're in the territory where um, sort of big actors and actresses are... Their their ro- big roles are in horror films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you know, it's it's a strange one that horror these days is completely different. It's like oh, I had to do two rom coms before I could do, you know, a big prestigious A twenty four horror film. Yeah, I mean, look at Florence Pugh. Exactly. Her, you know? Exactly. That was her breakout role. Yeah, and you know, it, whereas back then. <laughs> If if these actors, it, it all, you know, it was very much, coincidentally, they ended up in a really shit horror film. So, looking back at it now, it's uh, a little embarrassing to look back on. Whereas nowadays, if you get your breakout role in a horror film, there's a good chance it's going to be a really good film. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think anyone was turning around to uh, George Clooney and saying... Really enjoyed your performance in Return to Horror High, which is why we brought you in for this audition. Um, but you would have them turn around to Tony Collette and say, "Really loved your performance in Hereditary." Yeah. This is why we brought you in for this audition. Yeah. Uh, Danielle Harris wanted to reclaim her role as Jamie Lloyd, but turned it down when Dimension Films refused to pay her the five thousand dollars that she wanted. Harris stated in an interview... Really? That's really fucking... It really is. That's so long. Well, we're in Weinstein territory now, aren't we? we do, the budget... What, what was the budget? Like, five million? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I know it's not the biggest role in the film, but five grand... But it should have been the biggest role of the film. She was the star of four and five. Exactly. What's their issue? Yeah, well, she, she should have... off in this one. Exactly, but she shouldn't have been. 
She should have been in the in, in the entire film. The whole storyline is fucking ridiculous. It is. It is. Um, that shouldn't exist. No. They should have found the way to make this film her and Loomis again. Because, I mean, it feels like, what the fuck did we just sit through the last two for? Yeah, that's true. But they refused to pay her $5,000. Uh, she stated in an interview that when her agent learned the filmmakers were looking to cast an actress who was at least 18 years or older to play Jamie in this film, she was only 17 but wanted to do the movie so much that she got herself legally emancipated from her parents at the suggestion of filmmakers so that she could work longer hours without having to go to school. Harris spent time and thousands of dollars on the legal process, but ultimately turned down the film role due to her own dissatisfaction with her character's story and Dimension's refusal to pay her a salary that would have recovered her legal fees. Harris also stated that she eventually met and befriended J.C. Brandy, who took over the role in this film, uh, and she was treated poorly on set because Harris turned down the role. There we go. Fucking ridiculous. And it is... This is, this is um, Dimensions is Weinstein's, isn't it? No, that's Miramax. Miramax. Did Miramax do this? Was it Miramax? I swear this is... It has something to do with Weinstein's, it is. Because I know they took over the... Um, I know they took over the franchise, with the producing side and whatever. I mean, Mustafa Akkad has obviously been involved throughout the whole thing. Um, but I could, I could have sworn this was the, the one where... They were taken over. Um, I know they completely fucked over the Rob Zombie films. That's that's for certain. But then again, I don't know if there was any any saving them. Um, but yeah, I mean, this whole thing, it, it should never. I oh, know. Sorry, I've just checked. They're they're not involved with this one. Oh. It wouldn't have been a surprise if they were, obviously. Um, but yeah, I mean, this whole thing is a joke because. Like I said, you know, you had Daniel Harris, perfectly capable of acting in this film, mm. you know, and refusing the role because of perfectly valid reasons. Yeah. Perfectly valid reasons. They fucked her character over and not paying her that much money to recover those legal fees after they suggested it to her. Yeah. That is disgusting. Like, how much really would 5000 be in the Exactly. Budget, you know? And then to treat J.C. Brandy like shit because yeah. of Daniel Harris not doing the role. Yeah. That's, it's absolutely ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. But from some facts later on, I don't think the director is uh, the nicest of guys by the sounds of it. It was writer Daniel Farrens who suggested that the film be called The Curse of Michael Myers because of the trouble production. Oh. And it was originally... <laughs> the original title was Halloween 666, The Origin of Michael Myers. Ugh. Oof. Both terrible. For years after the theatrical release of the film, the only way to watch the producer's cut was by bootleg copies which had poor video and audio quality, rendering it nearly unwatchable. The footage managed to survive being destroyed by being released illegally. And... Uh, on September 23rd, 2014, Shout Factory finally released the producer's cut on Blu-ray with a restored picture from the original negative. Yeah, it doesn't look terrible, does it? No. The Blu-ray transfer for the theatrical version is way better than a film like this deserves. It looks yeah, really it is, good. Actually. <laughs> 
Um, Daniel Farron's original script was far more moody and psychological than the first draft, than the final draft, sorry. Uh, after reading the script, one of the execs at Dimension Films could not sleep that night and therefore called Farron's immediately and told him that they wanted to go forward with it. Donald Pleasance himself supported the original script and immediately signed on to make the film, only to find out that the script was being rewritten. What? I don't get it. it. It was like no one knew what they were doing on the production of this film. I don't, and, and I've never worked on a film. I'm not an expert on making films. But if you've got a script there that somebody says, this is fantastic, I want to make this. Donald Pleasance, who has been in all the Halloween films mm. apart from one, you know, who is more the face of Halloween then, you know, well, apart from Michael Myers, but they're there His name at the top of the cast. Exactly. If they're saying, yeah, this is great, why are the rewrites? Why is this weird... um, What? Arrogance? Would you call it Mm. arrogance? To say, well, we're going to rewrite this. We think something else is better. I think this is better. I think this is better. I think this is better. I don't. I really don't understand it. This final product is that what they wanted? Did they want the film to look like this? Exactly. Did they all screen this? Did they all sit there and be like, "Yeah, that's pretty good." That well, is. that brings me to my Enjoyed next that. bit of trivia. In early nineteen ninety five, after filming and editing was completed, Halloween Six was given a test screening, which, as described by Cara Strode actress Marianne Hagen. Uh, consisted primarily of 14-year-old boys. During the Q&A afterwards, one of them expressed great displeasure at the ending of the film, which entailed a Celtic ritual and the passing on of the curse of form to Dr. Loomis character. This led to reshoots to craft a new ending, but there was a big problem. Donald Pleasance could not be present for them on account of having died in February. Rest in peace. Not only was a new ending shot anyways, uh, but over 20 minutes of other footage was changed as well, leaving gaping plot holes that rendered the film nearly incomprehensible. I don't... It's insulting because they think that they can just throw anything together, chuck it out there and people are going to eat it up. Well, there was their chance. If... You know, I mean, I'm not sure obviously what this original script was. People say, no, it's shit. That's a shit ending. Um, we need something new. Go back to this original script that apparently scared someone so much they couldn't sleep. Exactly. Don't just film a shot of Michael Myers' mask and add Donald Pleasance screaming over the top of it. It's fucking insulting to yeah. Donald Pleasance. Why can't you just trust a screenwriter to write a film? Yeah. And everyone, can't you just trust everyone to do their job properly? Paul Freeman, the producer and director Joe Chappelle, reportedly rewrote the ending on set, even from shot to shot as production deadlines loomed large. Freeman also sent the crew home when crucial scenes uh, needed to be shot, deleting scripted scenes indiscriminately, uh, rewrote dialogue and action sequences. And took it upon himself to direct second unit shots as well as supervise the post-production phase of the original cut and made a series of blunders that resulted in Miramax taking control of the film, ordering uh, reshoots. So that's where the Weinstein's involvement comes go. in. 
Many of the crew have gone on record to state that director Joe Chappelle told them from the outset that he didn't like the Halloween films and was only involved in this project because it got him a free picture deal with Miramax. His next two films after this were both Miramax releases. There we go. Fucking crazy. Like, it is a big franchise by this point. Yeah, it's in deep water. It's, it's in a bad place. But there's a chance. Hire a decent director. You know... Fucking hire the director of Halloween 4, Halloween 2. But then, also, did this film have to be made? Did we have to see the conclusion... Of course not. ...of this trilogy? Of course not, but it's a mini-make. Well, they thought it was a mini-make. How many years between... Seven years? Like, was this always the intention that there was going to be a third film in this Jamie trilogy? There didn't even need to be a fifth. Not really. And then, you know, and that's the thing. Halloween 4 told a good story and it, you know, it rounded it off within the film itself. 5 and 6 were completely unnecessary. It's, it, it, it's, I think the issue is they're trying to create this whole narrative. Mm. Whereas with something, let's say like A Nightmare on Elm Street, each film, although connected to others in certain ways... Mm. Each film is kind of quite separate. Yeah. Uh, apart from four and five, which are sort of directly linked. Well, three, four, five, and six. That's kind of a trilogy in itself, actually. To, to a certain degree. Mm. But there's not a full narrative, convoluted storyline going. Through. No. It's Freddy's back, kills a bunch of teens. Yeah. Sayonara, Freddy. Yeah. Freddy's back, kills a bunch of teens. See you later. Yeah. That that's the narrative. The problem is, you're trying to create this convoluted. This fits here. Mm. This fits. This is why this happened in that film. This is why this happened in that film. We're going way back to the first film. Yeah. And we're gonna give you this twist. And too many people are saying, "Well, well, that that well, that means that." So then we have to do this, mm. or that's not going to... And then but what you get is a big fucking mess and a headache. Well, yeah, I mean, in my next bit of trivia, Farron's was told that even when they made part five, no one had any idea who the man in black was. He just walked in, he said he just walked in and walked through the movie. Uh, one of the biggest things they wanted to have answered was the identity of this guy. He decided to go back to the mythology of the first film and did so by bringing Dr. Wind back. He was the only, he was the one walking to the car with Loomis in part one. So yes, in part one, uh, when Dr. Loomis is uh, questioning another doctor as to who gave Michael Myers driving lessons, that guy, from that one scene, is back in this of a big part. Yeah. Completely unnecessary. And this is all because... Part five, they're like, oh, yeah, we've got a spare jacket lying around and a fancy hat and some shoes. Yeah, just walk yeah. on walk on screen, see what happens. But it didn't need to be in there. No. So you can't just ignore the guy in black. <laughs> but you can ignore the whole Jamie killing her mum in the bath. Exactly. <laughs> At one time, Scott Spiegel was going to direct and his friend Quentin Tarantino produce. Okay, no. No. <laughs> I think they had a lucky escape there. <laughs> Many of Donald Pleasance's scenes were edited out of the film because Joe Chappelle found him boring. 
Why was he directing this fucking film? I know. And that's, uh, you know, it shows. Yeah. It shows. He's hardly in this. If you don't have a true affinity for what you're doing, it shows. Yeah. According to Marianne uh, Hagen, she almost did not receive the leading role of Kara Strode. Miramax Films, unsurprisingly, did not like her physical appearance, deeming her too thin and her chin too pointy. Guys, you're making Halloween 6. Like, seriously, an actress, the way an actress looks should not matter in any film. But did you even think anyone was going to fucking watch this shit? She's portraying a single mum. Yeah. She's not going to be a fucking Playboy model, is she? College student who wears a fucking... Almost to the floor skirt Mm. for the whole fucking film. Like, oh. Fucking men. Straight white men. Oh, wow. With confidence. Denise Richards uh, was considered and turned down for the role of Beth. For being all boobs. Now, I originally misread that true fact when I first did it. And I thought it was funny. I thought Denise Richards didn't want to take the role for being all boobs. But no, this is Miramax saying, um, no, she's all boobs. We don't want her for the role. Oh, I misinterpreted yeah. that then. Like, what What do you want? What, what do you fucking want from your cast? Fuck what sake. do you want from them? But that's that's... There's a topless scene for that Yeah, role. she's the sexualised character. Fuck's sake. Oh, hang on. I may have... Uh, okay, so the exact bit of trivia is she was considered and turned down for the role. Yeah, turned down for the role. Yeah, so this is them complaining that she's all boobs. Yeah, turned down for the role. Yeah, fucking yeah. ridiculous. Edgar Wright is a big fan of this film <laughs> and came across actress Mary O'Brien as she was a painter working on his property. Oh, and he organised a cast and crew reunion for a viewing party of the film at his house. Bloody hell. <laughs> the uh, Halloween 6 curse mask uh, received a better reaction, with many praising how similar it looked to the original. However, some fans uh, said that the mask was too large and made Michael look like a bobblehead doll, or that the hair was too messy. Fans even said that the texture of the mask was too thick and lumpy, saying it looked like it was made out of clay or plasticine. I think this one's better than four and five. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and we have it as a sort of bobblehead in this room right now. I'm looking at it, and yes, it does work as a bobblehead. It does, yeah. <laughs> the screenplay that famed Horace Scribe. Um... Yeah, because this is. Whenever there's any sort of merch, random merch for Halloween, it's always um, Halloween 6. Or Resurrection. Or Resurrection. <laughs> the cheapest ones to get the rights for. Yeah. Um, which, what's the one? Child's Play 2. Child's Play 2. It's always Child's Play 2. <laughs> Surely it's just, wouldn't it just all cost the same? I know, you'd think so. Um, the Scott Spiegel screenplay dealt with a now homeless Michael Myers trying to find his way back to Haddonfield so he could gain revenge on those who wronged him. Reportedly, when Mustafa Ricard read the script, he threw it into the bin. Yeah, I would as well. <laughs> so Homeless? Awful. When did he ever have a home? Spoiler alert. Again, this is pretty much... That's pretty much Halloween 2. Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. Oh, shit. 
I haven't seen Halloween 2. Oh, oh boy. We say, and wronged him. <laughs> <laughs> Wendy Foxworth said in an interview that there was a clause in her contract for her to reprise her role as Tina in this film, but ultimately did not sign in on to the then in-development sequel in 1990 at the advice of her agents, opting to appear in New York theatre. Go on, girl. So she technically didn't die at the end of five? Technically not, no. Ah. They were going to bring her back. But now she's in New York theatre. Good for her. The MPAA initially rated this film NC-17. However, the film only had to trim a few minutes of its gore footage from Jamie's death and John's death by a few seconds, and the final scene had to be shot with a strobe light effect to get an R rating. That explains the random strobe light effect. Uh, yeah. This makes the film one of the few modern slasher films to require a minor cutting to be rated R. And modern by, I mean, in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, body count 20. <gasps> now. Can I just say something? You can. Just for anyone who listening, who's like shouting at us. Uh, Phantoms is the Ben Affleck oh. film. But also stars Rose McGowan, uh, Liev Schreiber. Oh, wow. And Peter O'Toole. Oh. Um, I always thought it was like a random teen uh, slasher film, um, which came out in 1998. But uh, apparently it's a horror sci-fi thriller. Very nice. Uh, in the peaceful town of Snowfield, Colorado, something evil has wiped out the community. <laughs> and now it's up to a group of people to stop it, or at least get out of Snowfield alive. You've sold me. That's nice. So... <laughs> Just in case she was shouting at me. Yeah, I'm sure all of our listeners are big fans of Phantoms. Massive, massive, massive fan of Phantoms. So, before we get into the film, I just want to touch on the differences between this and the producer's cut. So we'll primarily be speaking about the theatrical cut today. Um, But before we do, the producer's cut, first of all, contains less score. That is one of my biggest... Uh, one of the things that annoy me the most about the producer's cut, because I'd watched the theatrical cut the most before the producer's cut. Um, yeah, when I showed you it last year, I, I was puzzled. Because uh, I remembered it being really gory and everything, but the kills are really watered down. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really subtle. Which, I mean, obviously that's what worked for the first film, but when you're this deep into the franchise, and it's basically an 80s slasher franchise now, we want gore. Well, this one's got nothing else to offer, yeah? And that's the problem. There was no gore in the first film, but there was every single yeah. thing else that makes a good horror film. Yeah. Jamie Lloyd does not die at the beginning of the film, but survives being stabbed by Michael in the barn. She remains in a coma and is taken to hospital, where Loomis and Wynne visit her. Midway through the film, a gothic montage occurs, which reveals in fragmented detail the conception of Jamie's child amongst the cult. After the sequence, an unseen person, later revealed to be Wynne, shoots the unconscious Jamie in the head with a silenced pistol. Lovely. What was... What? Just, why? Just seriously... The, you might as well have just killed her. Yeah. What is it? Stop trying to make Wynne happen. I know. <laughs> John's death scene in the producer's cut was shorter, sadly. 
in the theatrical cut, um, is obviously his head explodes, but it's it's a lot. Yeah, a lot more subtle. Yeah, no. It, you have to watch the theatrical cut just for that. Yeah. It deserves a round of applause. In the finale, Kara uh, awakens... This is the biggest change. Kara awakens at Smith's Grove Sanitarium on a concrete slab surrounded by the court's members, including Mrs. Blankenship, Wynn's secretary Dawn, the bus de- depot man, <laughs> and Sheriff Holt. Wynn conducts a ceremony in which Michael will kill Stephen, the baby, as a final sacrifice of innocent blood, after which the curse will pass on to Danny with Kara as his first sacrifice. Kara realises that Stephen is a product of incest between Jamie and Michael and uses this to try to convince Michael not to kill the baby. Tommy holds Wynn hostage, forcing the court to free Kara and they run with the children through the sanitarium until they reach the locked gate. Uh, Tommy uses the power of the ancient ruins to stop Michael in his tracks. And Loomis helps the group escape. Later, after telling the others that he has unfinished business, Loomis walks back into the sanitarium to find Michael lying on the floor of the main hallway. Upon removing the mask, Loomis finds Dr. Wynn, with whom Michael switched clothes and then escaped. Wynne dies, but not before passing on the fawn symbol, which appears on Loomis's wrist, realising now that he himself is to act as the leader of the court. Loomis screams in despair. No. <laughs> ah! I, that's the first... You showed me that that's first, the first, yeah. didn't you? Um, I don't know, it made no fucking sense to me. What a terrible, terrible ending. No wonder no one liked it. Just ridiculous. But getting into the theatrical version, six years after Michael Myers last terrorised Haddonfield, he returns there in pursuit of his niece, Jamie Lloyd, who has escaped with a newborn child for which Michael and a mysterious court have sinister plans. So they kind of played this out like Jamie Lloyd was going to be in the film more than she actually is. Which yeah. is surprising that this is before Scream, because that's a very Scream thing to do in the 90s. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously it's a very uh, Janet Lee thing to do, but... So that's The whole Janet Lee thing was done a lot. Yeah. Um, you know... Um, I, think, I think the whole Scream thing was having your most famous actress die first yeah so drew barrymore was by far the most famous person in that film yeah um and she died first mm-hmm. um whereas janet lee wasn't particularly famous she was after psycho yeah um but she was the main protagonist yeah. um that's the that's how they differ yeah and and very much if you know if you were watching this for the first time after watching 4 and 5, you'd think Jamie Lloyd would be your main protagonist. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And if it was Danielle Harris, it would mean more. Yeah, yeah. Because we have that relationship with Danielle Harris playing Jamie. Yeah. But it's weird to get used to a new actress playing her and then her dying so suddenly and mm-hmm. early on in the film. Yeah. It's just, it, it's shit. It makes no sense. So we start with Jamie Lloyd saying, Uncle Michael, please don't hurt me, before a quick flash of everything we're about to see in the film. Yeah. <laughs> Ends there. To what point? 
I, I have no idea. Six years later, after Halloween 5, on October 30th, 1995, Jamie gives birth to a baby after being impregnated by her uncle, Michael Myers. Do we know it from the start, then? Because I missed that in the theatrical version. I feel like we're meant to assume. I see. Uh, that it is. Okay. But that is just... Not only is she supposed to be 15 years old, mm. but bringing incest into it, the fact that they think Michael Myers impregnated anyone, let alone his own niece. Yeah. What the fuck was going through their minds? Exactly. What a stupid fucking storyline. Yeah. And really, just really gross. It's just, uh, it's taking it over the top. It's too much. It doesn't need to be. No. You know, it's... It's, you've literally gone from Halloween, incredibly subtle in its approach, really, to Halloween 6, which is so ridiculously confusing. Yeah. And, you know, I guess it's over the top gory. Great. You know, we need them to be different in some way. We need these films to be different in some way. Um... But it's also so over the top in its acting. It's convoluted in its storytelling. Mm. It's ridiculous in its twists. It's just too fucking much. Yeah. The man in black, revealed to be the leader of a druid-like cult, takes the child away to draw the fawn single... Uh, single? Single. So I've actually wrote single on my notes. I don't know why. The drawn... <laughs> The fawn sign, the latest hit single from the fawn court, uh-huh. uh, on, uh, to draw, draw the fawn sign on his chest in blood. Paul Rudd's Tommy Doyle gives us a voiceover explaining what happened in Halloween 1 to 5 and how he thinks Michael and Jamie are hiding away somewhere. Do you think Paul Rudd watched Halloween's 1 to 5? I fucking know he watched Halloween's 1 to 5 because the amount of times we're reminded of what happened to Tommy Doyle in Halloween 1, oh my fucking God. You would think they f- they're they assuming no one's ever seen Halloween. It is explained every fucking five minutes in this film. Like, oh yeah, Michael Myers chased me on Halloween. No, Michael Myers, oh yeah, Laurie Strode was babysitting me. Michael Myers came face to face with me on Halloween. Yes, we fucking know. Fucking how? No, actual Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd, um, yeah. Do you think Paul Rudd in yeah, real life watched Halloween's 1 to 5 before being in this film? I believe he watched the first one. I, 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 do you know, I assume most people have seen the first one. Do you think Paul Rudd, in real life, had any kind of acting lessons... Oh, fucking hell, ...before no. starring in this film? No, no, I think uh, they, must, they must have gave him a few pointers on the set of Clueless, um, because this is... He was good in Clueless. He is, he is he's absolutely great in Clueless. He, you know... Well, he ain't got that much. He's fantastic in Ant-Man. Um, you know... He's funny. He's he's a he's he's one of those actors where, you know how some actors like Ryan Reynolds and Chris Pratt and whatnot. You see them casting everything, and you get to the point where you're like, oh god, I'm fucking sick of their humor now. Paul Rudd's not like that. He's he's genuinely funny, and he's such a likable person as well. Yeah. You know, you wouldn't mind him being casting everything, but this, I I don't know what he was thinking with this one. He does some like comedy gurning throughout the film but I don't even know if that's intentional <laughs> no 
Yes. Back to Paul Rudd soon. First yeah. of all, Sorry. a midwife helps Jamie escape with her baby, but she is killed by Michael when he puts her head for a spike on the wall and just stares at her. It's like, fucking yes, this is it. You know, when it starts, it's like, okay, Michael Myers is fucking back. He is acting creepy again. His mask looks good again. You know, he's unstoppable. Great. And then, you know, in, in soon enough, the film goes downhill. Uh, he also kills another guy by twisting his neck. Uh, Jamie and her baby flee in a stolen pickup truck with Michael in pursuit. Meanwhile, Danny Strode sees the film summary flash <laughs> from the start of the film, followed by the man in black saying his name. And uh, Dr. Sam Loomis has retired and moved to a cabin on the outskirts of Haddonfield where he lives as a hermit. So there's a lot going on in Haddonfield. It's a little more exciting. I know, yeah. In Haddonfield these days, in 1996, five, whenever. Um, Why is Dr. Loomis retired to Haddonfield? <laughs> like, oh, do you know what? The outskirts I've of Haddonfield. I've enjoyed it so much here over the years that I think I'm going to retire here. And yeah. remember in the last episode when we said about how, you know, Dr. Loomis never has a hobby. It's everything's Michael Myers this, Michael Myers that. Mm-hmm. He's listening to the Michael Myers radio show. Is, yeah. <laughs> There's a Michael Myers radio show. Everyone in town's listening to this fucking radio it's show. It's true. Hosted by Barry Sims, who um, two separate characters wear a T-shirt Saying Barry rules or whatever the fuck it says. Oh, I don't know. It Barry like... kicks ass. That's it. Yeah. Barry kicks ass. Um, Barry does not kick but ass. But it's like it's got. He hasn't got his face on it. It hasn't no. got. It, it literally just. It's an orange t-shirt with like writing on it. A, a very reminiscent of Cops Do It by the Book. <laughs> um, with just like Barry kicks ass. I mean, like... it's it's nineteen ninety six. It could well be Barry Chuckle. Well, potentially, yeah. <laughs> Barry from EastEnders. Barry from EastEnders. <laughs> or Barry Evans. <laughs> um, yeah, so... <laughs> the Michael Myers radio show's in full swing. Some girl calls up and tells Barry um, that she just wants to really fuck Michael. She's like, oh, he's so mysterious. It could well be Jennifer Tilly. Oh, he's so mysterious. She wants to know what's behind the mask. Oh, oh. She's like, oh, I bet he's got a bulge like that guy from Piranha 2. Oh. I can't remember his name. <laughs> I just remember his bulge. Okay. Oh, do you not? Oh, it's your is that not firmly... It's, it's your uh, wallpaper on your phone. Does it not, is that not firmly planted in your memory, the guy from Piranha 2 with the massive bulge coming towards the camera? I have nightmares about it. <laughs> um, yeah, so that she calls. So did you have any notes about that girl on the call? No, I don't know. No. She's just talking shit, she really. Kara Strode, um, Danny's mum, um, catches Tommy Doyle spying on her before he calls know, the radio yeah. show and tells them, surprise, surprise, what happened to him in the first film. And suddenly thinks Michael is still out there. So Tommy Doyle is very much... Taking on the Dr. Loomis role. I mean, Dr. Loomis is still here, but he's taken on that sort of obsession. He's got newspaper clippings all around his room. and Which is great. Where was this energy during the last... How many films? The part four, where he's yeah. just in a, in a shop for like yeah. a few seconds. Where was this energy when poor Jamie was in trouble? 
I know, yeah. Yeah, and he knows all about Jamie Lloyd. Exactly. He know everything. He knows the yeah. every plot detail of all the films. How was he meant to be in this film? So he was what, like eight? Eight in nineteen seventy eight. So he's in his mid to late twenties. Yes. So yeah, where was this energy? Exactly. Um. Yeah, and he's been a creep spying on Kara Strode for some reason. Well, it's, yeah, that's never really explained, is it? Because I don't know how long she's been living there for. Um, I don't know if it's the first time he's decided to do it, but it's the first time she's noticed him. Yeah. Um, she's in a nick, bra and nick, isn't she? Mm-hmm. But was the, wasn't the curtains closed? And then she happened to open the curtains. Yeah, and he's there watching. Watching. It's a bit weird, isn't it? It is a bit weird. Like, he's not even watching her getting tra- changed. Mm-hmm. He's watching... Okay. <laughs> He's watching her curtains. Yeah, he's a creep. Um, <laughs> Doctor Loomis is visited by his friend Doctor Terence Wynne, the chief administrator of Smith's Grove Sanitarium, who asks Loomis to return to Smith's Grove. Why? Why the fuck would you want Loomis Get back at Smith's Grove? You know, flashback to part five. Ah, you little bastards! Ah, I know, yeah. Like, he is not capable to be working as a psychiatrist again. Seriously, don't give him the job back. He's also way past retirement age. And also... Also, like... Why would he want to go back? I just don't understand. He's had all these issues at Smith's Grove. Yeah. He's had all these issues at Haddonfield. Why would he not just want to retire in peace? <laughs> Poor, poor Mr. Mr. Lo- Mr. Loomis. <laughs> poor Sam Loomis. They, uh, they overhear Jamie's plea for help on the radio when she makes a call to Loomis from a bus station, only to be ignored by Barry. Michael catches up with Jamie and she crashes the truck into an old barn. He kills her by impaling her on a tractor and turning it on, but then finds that her baby is not in the truck. What a brutal death for a main character. Yeah, that is that is a brutal death. But again, it would have meant more if it was Danielle yeah. Harris. Yeah. I mean, in the last one, in Halloween 5, they didn't want to kill Rachel um, by having a pair of scissors through the throat because they thought it would be too upsetting for a main character to get a death like that. And like, oh, okay, here's supposedly the girl you've been watching for the 4, four and 5. Uh, I don't have to be 15 years old here. Here she is, impaled on a tractor. Yeah. But it's, I see them as two different characters, though, because the, it's hard to relate the two to each other. Yeah. J- Jamie in four and five and Jamie in six. Mm. And because the films feel so different mm-hmm. as well, it feel, they yeah. don't feel connected a 100%. Yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, we're introduced properly to the dysfunctional family living in the Myers house across the street. From Tommy Doyle. Uh, they are relatives of the Strode family. We've got Cara Strode. Yeah. Her six-year-old son, Danny. A teenage brother, Tim. Caring mother, Deirdre Barla, uh, De- uh, Deborah. <laughs> Deborah is played by Kim Darby. And it was annoying the shit out of me. I was like, how do I know Kim Darby? She was the mum in Better Off Dead. Okay. The John Cusack film. I fucking love that film. 
uh, desperate to show it to you. Um, she was also in the original True Grit with okay. uh, John Wayne. I believe she was Oscar nominated for it. Maybe not, but... Well, in this... Um... In this, she's certainly not Oscar nominated. No, no, poor... Poor Deborah. They did her dirty, didn't they? Yeah, she's... She's, um... She's very much plain Jane, isn't she? She, she looks exactly like Deirdre Barlow in she the looks, 90s. But she wears those trainers that... It's 90s, sensible footwear. 90s American mums wore, like, the white trainers <laughs> you see in films all the time. She, oh, my God. She actually... She's giving me charity shop Sue. That's harsh to charity <laughs> shop Sue. <laughs> Older charity shop Sue. Oh, excuse me, lady. <laughs> and finally, last but certainly not least, abusive father John. Now, now it's funny his name is John because he is absolutely a poor man's John Goodman. <laughs> he is. He is. Um, actually, giving me a bit of Harvey Weinstein energy as well. Uh, yes. Um, so maybe he modelled the character on himself when they took over. Um, but yeah, John is one of those characters where it's like, okay, sometimes less is more. This guy does not know that term because, oh my God, immediately we know he's abusive because Deborah is clearly on edge and he is an absolute cunt. And and I know it's no shock to hear that word on this podcast, but let me let me tell you now, we strongly mean it this time. <laughs> to his daughter, um, and Deborah, he, he reads them both to filth, and uh, starts taking the piss out of uh, Kara for going to college and taking money from her mother. He calls Danny a bastard, and uh, then. Kara says to him, I only see one bastard in this house. So he slaps her around the face and Danny points a knife at him. It's like, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. He doesn't need to be giving us this much. No, no. Like, and the actor, I mean, I don't know if it's... I mean, technically it's a good performance because it is fucking believable. Like, this guy's like, oh my God, I believe you're an arsehole. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um... It's it's, it's kind of a, a strange dynamic to bring into the film and not kind of fully deal with because spoiler alert half the room's dead by the end yeah so well more than half of the room's dead before the conclusion of the film so it's it's kind of a bit like okay so this guy's a humongous prick yeah it makes his death more satisfying Uh uh-huh but it doesn't do much for the film. No. And for the narrative and the plot and... Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, again, just sort of putting something out there and not fully dealing with it. Yeah. Um, in case anyone's forgot, um, Strode is obviously the surname of Laurie Strode, the final girl from the first film. So he is Laurie Strode's uncle, I believe. He is. He is. On the father's side. Yes. Oh, of course. That's why they have the same surname. Um, so Beth shows up to give Cara, Danny and Tim a lift to school. Uh, she is the... All boobs. All boobs character, of course. Mm-hmm. 
She tells them tonight is the night that they bring Haddon, Halloween back to Haddonfield. Um, despite the fact that houses are already being decorated and kids are already in costume. It's so weird. <laughs> so it's like the town that banned Halloween, but we've seen lots of Halloween paraphernalia. Everywhere. Everywhere. Like there, there were kids going to school in Halloween costumes. In Halloween, I don't, I don't get it. <laughs> like it's yeah, it's it's ridiculous. Um, why introduce that storyline if you're not gonna fully commit to it? Exactly. But it's just a throwaway. So it wasn't like at the beginning of the film we've established that Halloween has been cancelled mm. in Haddonfield, which it probably should have been, <laughs> um, like many years ago. Um, but, yeah, it just makes no sense. No. Um, but then, just just in case uh, you've got this little bit of information from earlier on, Beth gives more <laughs> exposition about Tommy Doyle. He's the kid from Halloween night. Yes, we fucking know. We know who he is. Stop. Uh, and she explains that he lives with Mrs. Blankenship, who can't hear a thing. Dr. Wynn and Loomis are informed that Jamie Lloyd's body was found this morning. So they go to the scene of the crime and Michael has burned the fawn sign into a haystack. And really, it's like precise. Great detail. It's... Yeah, absolutely. Well done. <laughs> uh, Loomis is like, that's Michael's sign. How the fuck do you know that? I know, he doesn't know that. <laughs> he does not know that. We see lots of evidence that Tommy is obsessed with Michael Myers in his room. Um, and he's listening to the radio show on repeat. Yeah, did you notice that there was a front page... So he's got a lot of newspapers yeah. around about Michael Myers. And one of them is front page headline, Tommy Doyle survives... <laughs> <laughs> killing spree. Fuck and Lindsay's yeah, drag. So number one, fuck Lindsay's drag. Number two, that's not really going to be the headline for that night, is it? Laurie Strode. People die. People fucking died. I mean, not even that. Annie. Laurie Strode was pursued through, first of all, through Haddonfield, then through a fucking hospital. But, you know, she doesn't get front headline news. Tommy Doyle does. One of the headlines is literally, Tommy Doyle (laughs) survives. Like, oh my God. Is he some sort of big deal? Tommy follows a big trail of blood uh, at the bus station and finds Jamie's baby. Takes him into his care and names him Stephen. Who the fuck looks at a baby and is like, oh yeah, you're definitely a Stephen. Um, yeah, who also did not clean up that blood from the bu- very busy bus station? Yeah, no, no one's noticing. Who also, why didn't that baby cry once? Oh yeah. Like seriously, no one... No one thought to, you know, check on the crying sound. He <laughs> must have cried a few times. <laughs> no? Well, don't forget, one of the court members uh, worked at the bus depot, so um, he's probably... Actually, do you know That makes even less fucking sense. Why, exactly. if, if he's one of the court members, why don't you just go and grab the baby? Like, there you go, sorted. But the, the whole idea is that the baby's going to be completely silent yeah. this whole time. <laughs> this newborn baby... That, as far as we know, hasn't fed on a single fucking thing <laughs> since being born. Yeah. Yeah, has just been in this fucking dirty, rank cupboard. 
uh-huh. overnight without crying once. Yeah. Sorry. Cara just needs just to make sure we're on the right page here. Cara, Beth, and Tim find one of Danny's drawings where he's killing John, and there's a black figure with fawn written in the middle. <laughs> and Tim reacts to this by saying, "I think cool." <laughs> yes, that is. I think that's my go symbol. Cool. <laughs> it's without an S. Um, Tommy. I was doing a Peterson butthead impression. Oh, was he? Yeah. Oh, okay. There we go. Tommy runs into Loomis and tells him, you guessed it, who he is. Providing us with more expositions like, I'm Tommy Dorr from Halloween night, Michael Myers. Just, we fucking know. Of course, it was headline news. For sake. We all know. Um, he then tells him, he's like, oh yeah, by the way, uh, the Stroh family are living in the Myers house. And then runs away. Danny sees the man in black watching him on his way home. Tommy gives him a jump scare and makes him drop his pumpkin. In a little uh, nod to the first film when Tommy dropped his pumpkin. Tommy who? Doyle. From the first film? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Did you not know? <laughs> Lewis breaks into the Myers house. Um, oh. Poor Deborah. She's just minding her own business. <laughs> Lewis breaks in. He's like, here's Aval. He starts giving her a speech. You know, everyone knows it by now. The Lewis speech about Michael Myers. Um, so she calls John... And she's like, are you fucking kidding me? You let us move into this fucking house. How are we meant to know anything about Michael Myers' headline news from 1978? Exactly. <laughs> Why is this such a shock? So I can't believe this happened here. We're leaving and I don't care if you're coming with us. I mean, yes, yes, girl, go on. Give us that girl boss energy. You tell him. Um, you know, we need her to leave, John. So that is great for her. Um, but seriously, Deborah, how the fuck do you not know? Yeah, you should... Stupid. Incredibly, incredibly stupid. Deborah's just having a terrible day because she gets a call from the man in black uh, who's like, I want your child. Fucking hell, what? This is not her kid. I know, poor Deborah. And then she puts on her sensible trainers, she goes for a run to the back garden, and Michael shows up behind the washing and axes her to death. Yes, yeah, it's... It's a bit of a weird chase scene when she doesn't know the outlay of her own house, isn't it? Yeah, and she also... She sort uh, of gets surprised by a fence. Five minutes ago, she didn't know the Michael Myers story, but then when she sees him, she's like, Michael! Wait, what? How the fuck you know it's him? <laughs> You've come home. Kara comes home to find Tommy with Did Danny. Did she, before this, excuse me, because mm-hmm. I've got a big, long rant. Um, I know we cut down some bits for uh, um, time. Um, didn't she go to check on her washing and uh, the washing machine had flooded? Did it? Yes. I believe. Oh, no. Is that someone else? No, I think you're right, actually. Um, and they didn't, when the lights switched off. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how, yeah. Mm-hmm. So he's, yeah, messed with the lights, hasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. And the, yeah, okay. Kara <laughs> comes in to find Tommy with Danny in his bedroom. Highly inappropriate. Kara is like, what the fuck is this? And, uh... Danny's like, oh, it's all right. He knows about dinosaurs. He's my friend. I like, oh, okay then. Hi, strange man in my kid's she bedroom. She does seem to be okay quickly. Yeah. About this grown man 
who is home alone with your underage child. It is Yeah, with an unknown baby as well. With an unknown baby. Very weird. Um, also, like, the lights are back on. Yeah. Yeah? Uh, well, no, it's still daytime at this point. Oh, okay. Yeah. Later, Tommy, Cara and Danny go to Tommy's house, because they're all friends now, where Tommy reveals that he believes Michael has been afflicted with Fawn, an ancient druid curse. He also, he also has a divine magnet on his fridge, so go Tommy. I know, yeah. <laughs> long ago, one ch- in a bizarre series of events, long ago, one child from each tribe chosen to bear the curse of Fawn must sacrifice its next of kin on the night of Samhain or Halloween. Tommy believes that Stephen will be Michael's final sacrifice. That's very accurate. Well done, Tommy. Later that night, whilst Tommy goes out to look for Loomis in slow motion, Mrs. Blankenship reveals to Kara that she was babysitting Michael the night he killed his sister. Bullshit. Oh, I don't fucking and think that so. And that Danny is hearing a voice telling him to kill just like Michael did. Bullshit. Indicating that Danny also possesses the power of Fawn. Okay, let's rewind here. The night when Michael Myers killed his sister, he was very much alone. It was very much just Judith and her boyfriend who have 15 seconds of sex and that's it. Yeah. She was babysitting her brother. Yeah, she was looking after him. There is no way another person was there babysitting him. That is bullshit. You haven't watched the first film. No. Some reason you have this obsession with Tommy Doyle, um, like he's some sort of celebrity. So you've read about this character, you've not watched the first film. What the fuck is this? Exactly. It's so, it's really so stupid to try and rewrite stuff like that from the yeah. first film. Like, there's no way of there's no way of explaining it. There's no explanation at because all. You may not be for you know, whoever did this might not be familiar with the Halloween or care. Yeah, you <coughs> But your audience is gonna fucking care. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, if you're a director and you hate the franchise, that's fine, but don't fuck it up for everyone who wants to watch it. Exactly. We, you know, we both sat there. When she said that, we were like, no, you fucking didn't. Mm. That makes no sense. Yes. Barry Sims uh, is at the Haddonfield Halloween celebration thing that's going on and flashes his boxes to everyone. I'm confused by this. Not the boxes. Uh, (laughs) Terrible choice. I thought it was more briefs, man. Um, so they're like, oh, we're gonna, you know, have this party, we're fighting back, Halloween's been cancelled, we're taking control of Halloween back to Haddonfield, this, that and the other. We didn't look like anyone's trying to stop it. No. No, there's no one there trying to stop there what's going nof- on. There is apart from a couple of throwaway lines from Kara... Yeah. There was nothing to indicate in any way whatsoever that Halloween has been cancelled in no. Haddonfield. Someone just wrote that into the film because they thought it sounded interesting. Yeah. It's stupid. A drunk John returns home. Michael cuts the power. John goes to investigate. Michael puts his hand through him, lifts him up and fucking electrocutes him. Given us an amazing head explosion. Yes. So we know he's a dick. You know, we had one or two scenes to prove that. Um, and that just made the scene even better. Yes. Um, what? So how it was, was because 
There's a moment with the washing machine again, isn't there? Yeah. With John. So I have here. So did Michael break the power supply to stop the washing machine, then th- fix it? <laughs> So that poor man's John Goodman <laughs> can find a bloody sheet in the machine. Oh, yeah. So, so uh, when um, Deborah, when Deborah had her moment with the washing machine, mm-hmm. it's because it had stopped working. He'd yeah. broken it. Uh-huh. Yeah. So he, so Michael broke the power supply to the washing machine, fixed it so that John can find a bloody sheet in the machine. To then cut off the lights, but keep the washing machine working. Yeah. To then throw John into the power switch and make him explode. Uh Uh-huh. Spoiler alert, next time we're in the house, the lights work. Yeah. The power supply's fine. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, (laughs) It's a mess. Beth gives a speech about not letting Haddonfield's history ruin Halloween for them. No one's stopping you. Like, it's, it's there's nothing at all. Barry thinks, uh, because of this, that she wears crotchless panties and barks like a dog in bed. And did you get the crack line written down? I didn't know. Uh, he tells her to, was it, calm her crack or something? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I swear it was something like, calm your crack. Or something like that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Beth reveals that Tim lives in the mine. She's just a bitch. Like, poor Tim's just sitting there. He doesn't know about Headline News 1978. Michael Myers killing people in his house. Um, so she's like, yeah, Tim lives in the Myers house. Uh, so Barry's like, okay, everyone, we're going to Tim's house now. And we're going to host the rest of the show from the most brutal murder house in history. Is it... Is it the most brutal murder house in history? Unlikely. <laughs> so, I mean, there's, there's, that's setting the bar, then fucking hell. What else that? Um, his name Hate Holmes or something. Didn't he have a whole... Ho- didn't he have a whole hotel dedicated to murdering people? I think so, yeah. Didn't, like, someone have... Hate, I swear his name was, like, Hate H. Holmes or something. I swear there's someone who had bodies buried behind their walls. I mean, that's a little more extreme than... Dennis Nielsen. Than a six-year-old killing a sister, but, okay. No, it's one murder. I mean, are we talking <laughs> quality or are we talking quantity? I mean, even quality. It wasn't that brutal. No. <laughs> um, but we don't have to worry about it because Michael Myers waits in the back of Barry's van and stabs him to death after he finishes his phone call. Tim and Beth go back to Tim's house where he tells her that he's... Was Michael listening? I know, yeah. Why was he in the van? Why the fuck was he in his van? Why is he waiting like that? Is Barry worth his time to kill? Like, what is his purpose in this film? Well, I mean, he... Other than Deborah and Jamie, and, okay, well, I mean, two people he's killed so far um, have been terrible people, so, you know. Yeah, but... Okay, for a slasher film, that's fine. But in terms of, you know, the plot and his purpose... Yeah, no, it makes no sense. It didn't, him killing this what's-his-name doesn't make... What was his name? Uh, Barry. Barry. Barry Evans. It doesn't make any sense. No. So, uh, Tim and Beth go back to Tim's house where he tells her he's genuinely shocked that Michael Myers lived in his house. So Beth demonstrates how Michael Myers killed his sister. And then they start making out. Highly inappropriate. Uh, 
And then we get a kid back at the carnival thing saying, Mummy, it's raining. It's raining wet. It's warm. Yeah, this... Okay, no kid is that fucking stupid. <laughs> no child is that <laughs> stupid to not be grossed out. Every kid by that age has scraped their knee or yeah. gotten a, like a paper cut or something. They know what blood looks uh-huh. like. They're not, it's red rain. <laughs> like, fuck off. Shut the fuck up. And Barry's body falls from a tree. Yeah, again, like, what was the point? What is the point? How did Michael Myers get up there? Exactly. Did he take a ladder out in front of everybody and take the body up? What the fuck? <laughs> like, he's not the most conspicuous person, <laughs> is he? So... <laughs> Beth and Tim finish having sex in his sister's bed after some candle censoring. Oh my god, I love fashion. <laughs> Where her nipples are covered by the flames of the candles. <laughs> so fucking stupid. <laughs> Beth is amused by how much this would piss Kara off because they're having sex in her bed. Like, Kara's her friend. Where's yeah. this fucking attitude come from? What? Um, unless she has a thing for Kara. Maybe. Tim has to go for a shower to uh, stay fresh, in his words. Like, you could have gone for one before. I thought this was, was before. No, this is after. Is it? Yeah. Oh. Michael hands Tim a towel uh, before slitting his throat. Yes, that's very nice, isn't it? Very kind of him. <laughs> we know it's Michael Myers because when he takes the towel, it uncovers the fawn tattoo on his wrist. Kara calls Beth and tells her to get out of the house, but she's too late. She watches through Tommy's telescope as Michael kills Beth. Yes. Danny runs over to Is the house. Is there any mention of Deborah and John after their deaths? No. Like, just no, no point. No one cares. No point does Kara go, I haven't seen my mum and dad. It's literally, it's like Rachel in yeah. uh, Five. No one cares. Danny runs over to his house. Uh, Kara chases him and grabs a fire poker. Kara is... A great final girl. Yeah, she's all right. Yeah. I know Tommy Doyle tries to steal the spotlight, um, but I think Kara's really decent. She, the actress, looks like she'd make a good, um, angsty nineties singer. Yeah, she does actually. Yeah, she does, and I like that she's an older final girl as well. Yes. Yeah. Um. You know, and, and the performance isn't terrible, considering the circumstances. It's, it's, that's very true, actually. That is very true. She, she, she tries her best yeah. with what she's been given. Um, especially in this sequence as well, where she... I mean, She works with Paul Rudd a lot, though. Well, yeah, Rudd. that's true. I cannot reiterate this enough. <laughs> Paul Rudd is terrible in this film. Absolutely awful. His line delivery is fucking weird. I don't know what he was going for. Um, Kara slowly approaches Beth, who's tucked up in bed, and for Kara's only really dumb moment, she acts like she doesn't know that Beth's already dead, and is like, come on, you just watched her get murdered. Yeah, she's, like, pulling back the sheets, so... <gasps> uh, like, yeah. Um, yeah, like, of course they're dead. She discovers Tim's body under the duvet as well. Kara finds Danny uh, and Deborah's corpse before she's chased by Michael. She hides and pushes oh, him down the stairs. Oh, she does find her mum's She course. does. She's not really bothered. But. No. <laughs> um, she hides and then pushes him down the stairs. Yeah, she does. Gone girl. <laughs> Michael twists Kara's ankle uh, as she's leaving. 
But she and Danny managed to escape with Michael chasing them, mirroring the first film um, when Laura needed the keys. The keys. Um, they go back to Tommy's house where the fawn court have arrived. Uh, at, <laughs> where it's revealed that Mrs. Blankenship is a court member. <gasps> and we know this because she turns to Kara and says, Hello, dear. <laughs> <laughs> The man in black is Dr. Wynn. Oh, my God. Dr. Wynn. My favourite character from Halloween 1. Where's his moustache go? I know, yeah. He has an alright moustache in the first one. Kara jumps out of the window. And it fades out. Yeah, she slams on the ground. Knocked out, I'm assuming. Dead, potentially, which would render the whole thing a little pointless. Um, and then, yeah, it fades out. And then we have Loomis and Tommy standing up outside like nothing. And like, oh, yeah, it must have been drugged. What the fuck? No, no, no. That is fucking lazy to the extreme. Yeah. That is just... You forgot to film a bunch of stuff here. Clearly. Yeah. Because this happens in the producer's cut as well. Yeah. Like, you definitely forgot to... This is one of those sequences that was taken out of script. Yeah. Easily. It, it must have been. Um... Yeah, and they're like, oh, yeah, we were drugged. And they took Cara, Danny and Stephen to Smith's Grove. And uh, Loomis... Uh, and Loomis doesn't ham it up a lot. Um, so, you know, he gets a few little lines here and there. He's like, it's his game. And I know where he wants to play it. Smith's Grove. Yeah, that's a real obvious location. Not the Myers house where he grew up. Um, Cara is... Oh, it's a little <clears throat> different. Usually it is it's the Michael Myers house. <laughs> Kara's locked in a maximum security ward whilst the boys are kept in an operating room. The Michael Myers house? Why did I call it the Michael Myers house? <laughs> Everyone calls it the Myers house. It's true. Loomis confronts Wynn, who reveals that the staff at Smith's Grove have been working with the Fawn Court all along to study the power of Fawn and learn how to control it. <laughs> and he's like, oh, you're the only one who understood it, Loomis. You understood the Eve. I was like, oh, well, at least he's got some recognition. Do you know what? It's about time. <laughs> Stephen uh, is implied to be the successful result of experiments to clone Michael's pure evil. And the court plans to use Danny and Kara to create another one. Ew! Ew! Fucking hell. Yeah. Danny's a fucking child. Come on. Um. Also, if Sam Loomis... Was studying Michael Myers for all those years, and it's all he fucking goes on about. And how many years are we now? <laughs> Almost twenty. Yeah. Eighteen. <laughs> Twenty-eight years. Twenty. Motherfucking eight years going on and on and on about Michael Myers. Malcolm Myers. Malcolm Myers. Mike. Michael. <laughs> His distant cousin. <laughs> Michael Myers going on and on about him. It's all he ever fucking talks about. Clearly, he ain't got no wife. He got no kids. That's all. That's his main focus. And only now has he got the inkling, because they've just told him, he had no idea before, Mm -hmm. that there's some cult fucking bullshit going on at Smith's Grove. Like, are you fucking serious? You'd think he would have had an idea. I know, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, is it also explicitly <sighs> said, I don't think it is, in either version of the film, that Wynne taught Michael Myers how to drive? It's implied. Because, I mean, he is... He's been in charge of this from the get-go. He's the head of the operation. So but I've... it's implied in your head, or is it, is it implied in the film? Well, technically in the film, because he's been in charge of Michael Myers. He's been no, teaching him what to do. No, I mean, in terms of... Does the, is it they don't actually the say, film? no. Because no. I'm just... Again, it's just a case of, you know, you're rewriting history without being a fan of the first film. Yeah. You know, you'd think... Being a fan, you would remember that mm-hmm. throwaway line yeah. and use that as a connection. And we've sort of had to do it ourselves, yeah. haven't we? So, yes. Um, I mean, look, do you know what? Loomis, considering he was burnt alive and had a stroke in the last film, he's looking good for himself, you know? Yeah, he's, he's been his after eggs himself. disappeared off his face. Yeah. Good you know, him. got a fancy new pair of glasses. I think he had some work done, if I'm being honest. New jacket, you know. In fact, no, he just doesn't wear one. He just, he's, does he? He doesn't, does he? Oh, no, I don't fucking care. Loomis refuses to join the court and is, is it knocked a pipe out. Or is it a pipe? Or he's a got cane? a pipe, yeah. He's got a cane. He's got a pipe and a typewriter. Oh, probably yeah. writing about Michael Myers. Um, yeah, when wants Loomis to join in on the conspiracy... Um, but Loomis is like, nah, I ain't, I ain't up for that. Um, so he's knocked out by a court member. Tommy is confronted by some sort of mutated mental patient who's like, Michael's home. Yeah, for absolutely no reason whatsoever. <laughs> Just this random woman. <laughs> and she the, only, she... the only patient that's there. Yeah, and doesn't she just collapse and die? Yeah, and pretty much. Like, there you go. Tommy then frees Kara as Michael pursues them through the sanitarium after giving Michael a really weird smile. Like, he, he pulls a weird face at him and it's like, what, what are you doing? It's a bit where he's like gurning. Yeah. <laughs> it's so, it's like... He, he wasn't making a noise, but if he was making a noise, it would sound yeah. like that. <laughs> this isn't the Ghostbusters, huh? This is the point where... It, Literally, Michael Myers turns into the Terminator. Like, there's even a scene that, you know, feels like a parallel with Terminator 2. This is pure Terminator, this, this sequence. Terminator. Oh, my God, this is so Terminator. <laughs> <laughs> and we forgot to mention, the soundtrack to this film, by the way, other than when it's using the main theme, is fucking dire. It is. Um, and it, it has little weird noises that sounds like Deeper Shade of Blue by Steps. It's like, where hey, where hey. <laughs> it really does, it does. It does. Please try and do <laughs> something with that. If, any, if anyone would like to do it for me, that would be amazing. Thank you. I love you forever. Okay. Um, if you want to edit over Claire Richards going, way hey, instead of the soundtrack for this film, please do. Um, <laughs> so they find Wynn and his team. Um, oh, and yeah, and the shitty guitar as well. We get like a random yeah. guitar note every now and then. It's like, great, thanks for that. That's really useful. Um, they find Win and his team who are about to perform a medical procedure on Danny and Stephen, but the, the light like, is so bad for? you can't tell. Like, what, what, um, what for? Yeah, what medical procedure do you need? I don't get it. I don't understand. Michael suddenly appears um, and it's like, do you know what? I ain't having this fucking shit. They're taking my spotlight. Um, they're trying to be, you know, the big bads of the film. I'm fucking Michael Myers, the Terminator. I'll do what I fucking want. 
So he turns on some strobe lighting and murders everyone. Yes. Because when in doubt, turn on some strobe lighting. <laughs> um, and this includes Wynn, so we don't even get to see Wynn have a good death. Um, good. Good. Do you know who didn't deserve a good death? <laughs> Wynn. Didn't deserve anything. He deserved to be in the film. <laughs> um, but, yeah, this, this whole sequence is just bizarre. Like, why is Michael Myers, after 28 years, this, uh, this cult that he's supposedly been in his entire time, it's like, no, you ain't having this anymore. I don't fucking think so, darling. Like, did he not realise he was in a cult? I know. Did he? And also, like, where... <sighs> I, I, do you know what? I don't. I, I actually don't give a shit. <laughs> I genuinely. I don't. This is the point of the film. Well, it was slightly earlier on. But this is the point of the film where I genuinely and wholeheartedly stopped caring. I was just like, nah. This. This is. This is. I mean, ridiculous. for me, it's the fade out. It, it's the fade out, and we were drugged scene. It's like that's that's so. That's like, you can't get me back on board now. No. You've lost me now. Like, you had me. Kara yeah. going through the, the Myers house yeah. and, you know, beating up Michael Myers. Yeah. Do you know what? You had me for a bit there. But then when they did the whole... Yeah. yeah no, 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 thank you. Um, Tommy and Kara rescue the kids and Michael chases them into a um, lab laboratory where Kara notices fetuses from Wynn's failed experiments. Oh, is that what that was meant yeah. to be? Oh, fucking hell. Tommy injects Michael with corrosives and beats him unconscious with a lead pipe, leading him to bleed green blood. Yeah, pretty easy uh, resolution to the issue, wasn't it? Yeah. He just grabs clearly whatever was close by mm-hmm. and just, yeah, injects yeah. him with him. Tommy, Kara, and the children leave Smith's Grove whilst Loomis stays behind to take care of some business. Inside, Michael's mask lies alone on the lab floor and Loomis screams in the background, leaving their fates unknown. And that's Halloween, the curse of Michael Myers. And that's the Fawn Court trilogy. Thank fuck, that's the end of that storyline. <laughs> Completely ignored in all future entries in this franchise. A whimper. The conclusion is a whimper. So lazy. Poor Donald Pleasance. Was this his final film? This was his final film. And he goes out with one of his stupid screams whilst we look at Michael Myers' mask. Yeah. No, we don't even look at that. We look at a pumpkin. Oh, is it a pumpkin? Yeah. Oh, I don't... I don't... I genuinely... And I really... I cannot tell you this enough... I did not give two shits by the end. I really, I just that what what was with that ending? How abrupt! And it's still like <laughs> is it, leaving it open ended. Um, apparently it was Sam Loomis died. That is Sam Loomis dying because Donald Pleasance had died in real life. He was never gonna, obviously, never gonna come back. Mm. Um. But what was with the you, the whole fawn cult thing that's built, you know, this big twist, all this stuff, and then the cult itself is killed like that. Yeah. It's it's ridiculous. What was what was the point? Yeah. Where did they think they were going to go with that storyline after? Where did they think the next sequel was going to go with that? Yeah. The, so the cult itself... Has existed for all this time. Mm. 
And then suddenly they're all killed, like, killed off. Like... Yeah. What was... What was the reason? What was the reason? Yeah, and it's not even like the producer's cut ending's any better either. Like, Dr. No. Loomis then becoming the leader of the court. <laughs> yeah. Like, a tattoo that... When someone dies who carries the tattoo, it transfers to someone else. Get fucked. It's like, I'm so, Excuse me. Um, all respects to Donald Pleasance. Um, but he, what? He must have been in his 70s at the time. <laughs> What's with the obsession of trying to give people in their 70s old white men jobs and responsibilities? <laughs> I mean, Donald Pleasance is a legend. Um, you know, he's had some great film roles. He's, he's a great actor. Oh, he's fantastic. And That's no, he, no disrespect. You know, he deserves to lead his own film, but not as a fucking cult leader for Michael Myers. Not after we've seen three films and we're like, I hate him, he's evil. Like, And then all of a sudden, I'm your leader now, Michael, do what I say. Yeah, that wouldn't have made any sense. Also, were there any... So was the suggestion that what Michael Myers was doing was... Uh, Led by the court. The court were telling him what to do. Yeah, so Smith's Grove had been in charge the whole time. Until suddenly he kills them all. Yeah. <sighs> and that's what you get when you make decisions as the film goes along. Just th- that's what happens when you haven't done your homework. And you haven't done your research. And you try and write about stuff that you don't know about. Mm-hmm. Or you try and create something that you don't have an actual love for yeah it's yeah. incredible it, it i just i just don't understand and it's it's the side of films you know that's the money making side that's a cheap cash in and it's it's quite sad really because halloween so the first halloween is your favourite film. Yeah, yeah. It's one of my favourite horror films. And I'm sorry, but this is fucking abysmal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, abysmal. And it's still How not can even... How you a... go from such a high... Yeah. ...to such a low... There's no reason for it. No. And the worst part is, not only is it not even the worst film in the franchise... Not even the worst fucking film in the Fawn trilogy. That'd be part five. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. At least this, you know, at least this was entertaining. Mm. Despite, I mean, for the wrong reason, not because it's a good film. But, <coughs> I mean, excuse me, Halloween 5 had the whole fucking sequence in the Myers Haunted Castle that went on for like half an hour of just seeing Jamie Lloyd running around. <laughs> that was boring. There were some really boring scenes in part five. At least this had gore, you know? The only thing that this film has... And Cara, and it had Cara Strode. Okay. Yeah, but then... But Jamie Lloyd was still... Yeah. Yeah. A uh, worthy final girl. I mean, mean, I don't think you've even seen... uh, For me... (laughs) I don't think you've even seen the worst Halloween film yet. For me, it's it's Rob Zombie's part two, spoiler alert. Okay. Um, We'll get to that in two weeks' time. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a sign of the times with horror in 1996 and how the dramatic difference between something like this and something like Scream 
being months apart, you know, Scream came along a little later, changed the face of horror, and that really shows in the next Halloween. Uh, yes, yeah. You know? So, like, like I, I said, I can't remember when I said it, um, I'm not even sure if it was on the podcast, uh, <laughs> may have been, uh... Well, we did I a Scream have, episode, so I might have turned, it, No, no, um, y- you see influences influencing... Yeah. And then influences influencing yeah. and so on and so forth. Um, it's really interesting. It is. Whereas Friday the Thirteenth was obviously influenced by Halloween. Um, Halloween, two. Yeah. Was influenced by Friday the Thirteenth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know the up the gore and all that, um, and we'll see the same with Halloween H two O and Scream. Yeah. So getting into uh, our Michael Myers through the years oh, special yeah, bonus part, round. Yeah, Best kill: John's electrocution and head explosion. Absolutely, there's no yeah, there's no other contender. Ooh. It really, it really, it actually looked really good. It did. It, it did. Really good. Um, one good, one good scare. Uh, Jamie's hospital escape. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. I'm clutching at straws here. Whatever. No. <laughs> None of it was scary. Um, most likable character, Kara Strode. Yes. Yeah, that's true. That is very true. And most unlikable character is, of course, John Strode. John. Yeah. So that is uh, it for this Friday's extra Tommy Doyle special. Tommy was pretty annoying as well. Though, uh, he was. But yeah, but he wasn't slapping people. And... Paul, Paul Rudd's, uh, <laughs> between Paul Rudd's acting and his going on and on and on about the same fucking thing. <laughs> Uh, yes, so if you're on social media, let us know if you're somehow a fan of Halloween 6. Um, we're Horrorcore Trash over on Facebook and Instagram, Horrorcore Trash on Twitter. Uh, if you would like to do a remix of the theme song mixed with Steps Deeper Shade of Blue, please do. Um, <laughs> like and follow on all the SoundCloud and Spotify and whatever. Rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. And I'm Dada Gaz, 92 on Letterboxd, Gazmo205 on Instagram, GazCruz92 on Twitter. I'm Chris Barker823 on Instagram, Twitter and Letterboxd. And we'll be back on Tuesday with our Michael Myers Through the Years continuation with the post-Scream duo. Halloween H2O and Halloween Resurrection. Great. (laughs) We'll see you on Tuesday. Bye.